The scripture reading today is from the book of Revelations, chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, a lamb standing as if it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They sing a new song. Christ Jesus is worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for he was slain, and by his blood you ransom for God saints from every tribe and language and people and ethnic group. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them singing to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, National Presbyterian. It's my pleasure and honor to join you this morning as we worship the Lord 
uh, together. I'm so grateful for the ministry of this church and the long-standing relationship with uh, the Church of Egypt, especially uh, uh, the seminary there, ETSC. Um, one of, one of uh, the things that really captures my heart uh, when people coming from different places, worshiping together, it reflects the, the image that we just read about in the scripture about Jesus Christ buying us and redeeming us from all tribes, tongues, and nations. It's one way of practicing, major way of practicing um, the, the body of Christ. I'm so grateful for that. Today, I'll reflect with you on um, a perennial question that doesn't fail to keep asked. It's the question of suffering. Question of suffering. I'm going to share with you a personal experience, then we'll go from there. My brother suffered severe illness for over 22 years and then tragically died in a horrible accident. My father believed in the sovereignty of God. He was a good Presbyterian, he was an elder in the Presbyterian church. He continued serving God faithfully through and through. After my brother died, I couldn't take it any longer. I was a teenager back then. So I took it on. I took it out on my father. I said to him, why? Don't tell me a God of love would send such a disease. Or that God never gives us more than we can handle. Many of us heard this sort of expression. Many of us have experienced such feelings. It's nothing new. Obviously, this is an expression of anger, deep anger, and the immediate response to that is that anger is okay. It's okay to be angry. It's perfectly natural. There's nothing immoral or unfaithful or unchristian about getting angry. It's an acknowledgement of an aspect of reality. However, sometimes there's another problem lurking behind this anger underneath this anger. It's a problem of a frustrated trust. This frustrated trust partially results from our ideas and assumptions about God's power that we borrow from our culture and that we then project onto God. So when I took it out on my father, I was saying something like this. If God was almighty, we just recited the Apostles' Creed, I believe, God Almighty. If God was Almighty, then God could have kept my brother from suffering and kept us from suffering in relation to him. But God didn't. The question now is, if God is all-powerful, as we believe, what is this all that we're formed by our culture to project onto God? What pictures of power do we see in everyday life, in TV commercials, in movies, in political agendas, and pretty much everyday conversations? The first thing that usually comes to mind when we think of this question is that power is something related to a total control and domination. But to this view, power would be something that is possessed. It is something I have to keep and invest in by acquiring more of it. And if I have 
if I have this power to a certain degree, I can employ it to control what's going on around me. And consequently, it is such that when my power encounters your power, it's a kind of a zero-sum game. My power either controls your power, and in this case, you lose power to me, or the other way around. The problem here is that applying this thinking to our understanding of God's power, God's might, is equivalent to positing human power and then infinitely amplifying it and then projecting it onto God. But if we do that, what we, when we do that, we are actually making God in our image instead of celebrating the fact that we are made in the image of God. So let's now turn to the Word of God and try to see what it has to say about God's power. In Revelation 5, we encounter a situation of horrendous evil and suffering. It's an overwhelming persecution of Christians by the Roman emperor. This evil caused much weeping and crying, mixed up with uncertainty and despair about the future, about what will happen, about what God has in store for us, about what God has in mind. This situation is symbolized by a, by a scroll with writing on its both sides, sealed and awaiting its opening to reveal God's will. At first, the mighty angel can find no one worthy enough to open God's scroll. The future of creation hangs in the balance, and John weeps in concern. Then a single elder identifies the Lion of Judah, who has triumphed as the worthy one. At the climax of the scene, the elder's dramatic observation is confirmed by John. However, John sees not the victorious messianic lion, but rather a slain lamb, slaughtered lamb, standing next to God's throne. Uniquely and unexpectedly qualified by his death, the lamb himself takes the scroll from God, which is a confirmation of God's endorsement. The heavenly assembly of the four creatures and 24 elders responded singing a new song about the worthiness of the slain lamb to open the scroll because he redeemed people to be priests serving our God. Other voices joined this chorus, first by thousands of angels who sing about the lamb's worthiness to receive worship as Lord and then by the entire cosmos. I'd like to share with you a few ideas centered about the lion and the lamb and the scroll and the priests. And now you're permitted to extend your imagination to any part of C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. So the first question is, is it a lamb or a lion? What are we talking about here? When we project our cultural sensibilities onto the heaven of God, we naturally want to see God a lion in absolute control over the jungle. The text tells us that God reveals God's self as a lion. However, the text immediately shifts the imagery to that of a lamb. And not only a lamb, but a slain one. I'd like here to use this double image to refer to a biblically-based theological truth about God. God is simultaneously transcendent and eminent. Both the other to creation and the intimate one with creation and in creation, 
As such, God is free in relation to the world, yet at the same time is present to the world and in the world. God doesn't need the world, yet creates and loves it anyway, and present to it and in it anyway. Now, to our cultural projection of God's power, these are irreconcilable terms and are therefore paradoxical at best. And this is so because we think of power as a zero-sum game. If a lion and a lamb have an encounter, it's a zero-sum game. A lion gains power over against the lamb. And as a consequence, the lamb loses power to the lion. And if by any luck the lamb gained power against the lion, this would mean that the lion loses some power. In similar fashion, we think that God's transcendence is compromised by God's eminence and vice versa. Often, we unintentionally project this idea about God. In practice, this means that we unreflectively divinize power. We make power God. This means that when we say that God is all-powerful, we actually mean that power is God. Power is something ultimate. How does that show up in our lives? It shows up to the extent in the extent to which we depend on power understood in this way to be that which will keep us safe. We are dominated by fear. We can see that underneath a lot of discussions about economy, about foreign policy, as well as in our personal lives. We project a sense of power in zero-sum games with the goal of trying to control our environment or to protect ourselves from being controlled by others or by our environment. Now the word of God tells us that God is lion, as lamb. John the seer is instructing us that whenever we encounter the word lion, we should read it lamb. That would be the transliteration. But not lamb as a replacement of lion, or as a weaker version of lion, rather lion as lamb. God's power is that of a suffering God, it is a power that participates in our suffering. Therefore, images of control about God are somewhat misguided. What about the scroll and the priests? One way of emphasizing power as absolute control is to interpret God's planning in a static, deterministic way. When we think of divine, of, of divine plan, we usually think of a blueprint. We borrow this imagery from the world of engineers and I'm originally an engineer, so I relate very well to this image. It is something set in stone, permitting no alteration and no interaction. However, does the Bible unqualifiedly support this image of God's planning? A scroll in the time of the text's world was written only on one side, the inner side, so that no one could read it except the ones intended to. What is interesting here the text that we read, is that the scroll is written on its both sides. This could mean that not only God has purposes to accomplish in the world, but also these purposes are open for covenantal deliberations and interactions. In Genesis 18:17, God says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? God deliberates with Abraham about God's decisions. In Acts 15, 28, Luke says that it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, namely the church, 
The church deliberates with God about important issues. Paul also says that we are God's fellow workers. Perhaps God's planning may also be understood like the way a poet's imagination works when it begins with a certain image and then lives with it and lives with how that image unfolds, which is not predetermined or pre-controlled by some sort of an algorithm or internal mathematical logic. It's a relational way of thinking about God's purposes and actions in the world. This way, God's power is not primarily a controlling power. Rather, it is an empowering power. As an empowering power, God's power inherently shares itself. So one can say that God has purposes at work here, instead of saying that the terrible thing that happened was God's purpose. That shift in imagery allows us to talk about God's power as empowering, as a power to sustain, to nurture, to transform. It's a power that works more interior to us than we can even be to ourselves, like Augustine says. A self-sharing, empowering power is that which creates, reconciles, and redeems covenant partners. God's power is the capacity to supply us with resources so we can work with God in the world in witness to God's purposes. It creates and sustains priests as God's co-workers who mediate the divine power through self-sharing. In the Old Testament, priests stand before God for others. They offer the sacrificial lamb on behalf of others and declare God's grace and forgiveness to the sinner and the broken. Through the Lamb and the Spirit, God has made us, has made us uh, priests who in our own vulnerability declare and mediate God's healing to a broken world. We do so also by self-sharing because when we do so, we are being formed according to the image of God, that is Jesus Christ for which we are created. God's power is a power that shares itself. And as it shares itself, it enters into conditions of life in which we find ourselves. And that includes a lot of suffering. That presence in the midst of human vulnerability and suffering is an empowering presence. This is where you get in touch with divine power, self-sharing. In light of the Word of God, we are called to be transformed to the image of God, that is Jesus Christ, the suffering God. This means that we need to examine our concepts and our practices of power in the context of family, ministry, economy, politics, what have you, and pretty much all our relationships. Let's ask ourselves, do we worship the true all-powerful God, almighty God, or do we worship the power God? or the God of power? Where do we place our trust at the time of fear? Where do we put our trust? There also is our God. When I burst out at my father upon my brother's death, I asked them, why do you faithfully serve such a God, sharing yourself with others? He answered, because of Jesus Christ. And he didn't say much more than that. Everything suddenly started falling in place, and it's been falling in place ever since for me. My anger subsided. I didn't know everything then, and for sure I don't know everything now. 
far from it. I still get angry, even furious, every now and then. A best friend of mine lost his wife to cancer two years ago and his son to COVID this year. However, I now know how to react, what to do. Share myself with others. In this act of self-sharing, God's empowering presence is at work through human vulnerability and fragility, bringing something better out of the bitter situation. Because God is a lamb lion, because God is a suffering God, I am standing here before you today. Any other God wouldn't be the true God Almighty. If my father didn't self-share it, hadn't self-shared, I wouldn't have been standing before you today. Yes, I believe in one God Almighty, Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lamb Lion. Let's pray. God our Father, we praise your name because you are almighty. But as almighty, you're not a tyrant God. You're a loving God. And as a loving God, you're not a weak God. You're an empowering God. We bless your name for your presence amongst us through our difficult moments, vulnerability and fragility. You communicate yourself in a way that empowers, nurtures, sustains us so that we can reflect your presence in a broken world. Open our eyes to those moments where we can self-share as we grow to be in the image of God, in your image as you created us the first time. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.